When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Morgan Patelka about his wonderful new book, Reading Medieval Ruins, Urban Life and Destruction in 16th Century Japan, published by Cambridge University Press this year. Dr. Patelka is Bernard L. Herman Distinguished Professor of Japanese History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, Dr. Patelka. So our first question is always biographical. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in Japanese history? Thanks so much, uh, Sammy, for uh, talking with me today. Um, well, I grew up in Northern California and um, I, I've talked about this before uh, in podcasts. I, I had some exposure to Japan uh, through films Um my mother managed uh, these two movie theaters in Northern California that used to show a lot of Kurosawa films. Oh, wow. And so, that. yeah, I grew up uh, watching um, samurai movies. I loved uh, Mifune Toshiro. He was my favorite actor. I was a very odd child, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but you know, really the truth is that it was when I went to college. Um, I went to Oberlin College, which is a liberal arts college in Ohio. And um, one of the reasons I went there was they had a great Japanese studies program. So I took Japanese uh, there. I studied history. I studied abroad at Doshisho University for my entire junior year on the Associated Kyoto program. And, um, you know, I, I don't know how or why, but I just knew that was what I wanted to do. And uh, I threw myself into it. And uh, I was lucky to have great teachers, people who have continued to be mentors to me all the way up to the present day. Um, I, I was especially lucky to, um, be able to return to Japan after my, uh, after graduating from college, uh, on a Watson fellowship, which is a really unusual, unusual fellowship that gives you funding to travel for a year independently and pursue a research project, but you're not hmm. allowed to be affiliated with a university or with any institution. You have to be independent. Oh, wow. And so I lived with families of potters all across Japan for, for a year. And then I went to grad school. So that was really the kind of, um, I don't know, the, the, the furnace that, you know, forged my interest in um, material culture and in ceramics. Oh, wow. I mean, I knew some of that, you know, because I've taken obviously your courses at UNC Chapel Hill. We're both based there. Uh, I'm almost finished, but I didn't know the uh, some of the specifics, especially the Kurosawa and the Potters. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, could you talk about the genesis of this particular project? What made you want to write this book? You've written plenty of others, some of which have already featured on New Books Network. Yeah. Um, so... When I went to graduate school studying pre-modern Japanese history, I knew I wanted to study the 16th and 17th centuries, this era of political and cultural transition in Japan. Um, and I knew I wanted to include the study of things. Um, I, I was an early advocate for material culture studies in the broader field of Japanese studies. 
And uh, I was, you know, I spent my first year of graduate school basically poking at various projects, trying to figure out what was feasible, what would be interesting, what would make a contribution to the field. And I spent some time at the Freer and Sackler galleries at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., uh, getting to know the the incredible curator for Asian ceramics there, uh, Louise Court, uh, who has been a mentor and friend uh, for my entire career. And she introduced me to this site in Japan called Ichijo Dani that no one had written about in English, but that was emerging in the literature on Japanese ceramics as one of the best um, resources because it provides, as we'll talk about, you know, a century of really detailed archaeological information. And I, I looked at it as a potential PhD dissertation topic. Um, but in the end, I, I wanted something more narrative, something that would not be so beholden to archaeological sources at that time. And so I ended up writing my dissertation and my first book about a family of potters, the Raku family, that was founded in the same period in the 16th century, but that continued all the way up to the modern day in this generational lineage mm -hmm. um that was actually a very hard project to complete but <laughs> but i could wrap my brain around it more easily whereas this one at that time i couldn't quite figure out how to approach it um and so after she introduced me to ichijo dani i kept i visited for the first time the next year and i kept going back on repeated trips and collecting evidence collecting um excavation reports and taking pictures and talking to archaeologists there and it took me a really long time, but eventually I figured out uh, how I wanted to try to tackle the subject. Great. Um, I was wondering if you could situate us by telling the listeners a little bit about Ichijo Dani in the 16th century, uh, in 16th century Japan. Um, what are some of the important things we should know? Um, and in doing so, I was also wondering if you could tell us why it's important to think of it as a provincial palace city as opposed to a castle town, which you make very clear in the introduction. <laughs> yeah. So the 16th century is, I think, just one of the most interesting periods in all of Japanese history. Um, it is probably best known to non-specialists as the age of war in states, uh, this, this long era of civil war. Um, that The phrase Sengoku, or age of war in states, is borrowed from Chinese history, um, where there really was a period when there were these separate nations essentially that were at war with one another and that's not quite the case in japan you have provinces that are ruled by independent warlords um but it's an interesting period because it's it's sort of like the distilled version of the medieval um if you know if we think about this european notion of a medieval phase in history um what's really implied by that phrase is decentralization right so you have um either uh a um a kind of central administrative structure that has broken down, or you have multiple competing central um, political structures. Part of Japan's medieval period, you have multiple centers of authority or um, gates of power, as they're sometimes called. You have the imperial court, you have warrior authority, and you have these big Buddhist institutions that are that are so influential. But in the Sengoku period, after civil war, you know, kind of... Um, washes across the archipelago, a lot of the regional warrior leaders really retreat to their own provinces or domains, and they rule independently, almost as kings. I mean, they're not kings, they're, they're warlords, but they are beholden, in a sense, to no one. 
I just thought that period was so interesting and and it's talked about a lot. It appears in movies and video games and, you know, anime and manga and all the rest. But we don't have a lot of literature on the Sengoku period in English. Um, and so looking at this town of Ichijodani, which was the headquarters of one of these warlord families who ruled their own province quite independently for almost a century, was a way to get at the national story of the Age of Warring States, the Sengoku Jedi, but also the particular place, the particular regional story that this capital city represents. Um, now, Ichijodani is usually talked about in Japanese as a castle town. And the phrase in Japanese for this is Jokamachi. And so if you look at the kanji, at the Chinese characters, it literally is castle underneath neighborhood, uh, or rather we flip it around, the neighborhoods underneath the castle, right? And that, the nuance of the Japanese phrase, unfortunately, is lost in the English translation. So, you know, these these later Edo period cities that are built around castles, where the castle's up on a hill, and then you have this giant urban settlement basically, you know, flowing down from, from that, that central hub, that is not what Ichijodani looks like. Ichijodani is a city built in a valley, and the castle is on a distant peak, completely disconnected from the, the city. And instead, Ichijodani is built around the residence of the Asakura, which is not a castle, it's a palace. So I, um, trying to understand Ichijodani better, I collaborated with historians and archaeologists from Europe and the Middle East who looked at pre-modern urban settlements all over the world and they really turned me on to this notion of a of a palace city, and I um, I wanted to advocate for you know using different terminology. Sometimes the English translations of specialized Japanese terms don't really do the work they need to do in English, <laughs> and I think um, Castletown is fine for uh, certain cities. Uh, Azuchi Oranobunaga's Castletown, great. You know, Edo starts out as a castle town, it becomes a megapolis. Um, but for Ichijodani, it doesn't cut the mustard. So I, I it's it's a kind of, um, it's very granular, it's kind of nerdy, it's not the sort of thing that regular people are going to care about. But I think it's worth saying the the language we use to translate Japanese terms matters, and we should try to get it right when we can. No, I really enjoyed it. And it also helped to to get an image. So not just like as a conceptual term for for the period for specialists like yourself, which I'm not. Um, even for me to just imagine the city, that sort of description helped to get a picture, even if you didn't have one uh, before you. So I thought it was helpful. Um, so on page six, you argue that, and I quote, the material remains in Ichijodani contain a deep and profound message regarding life in late medieval Japan which I read and interpret in stages over the course of each chapter, end quote. Um, could you talk a little bit about the sources you're working with, um, as well as the methodological approaches you found useful in reading um, these medieval ruins? Yeah. So I'm a historian by training, and the core method of the historian, uh, as you know very well, you are, you are knee-deep, hopefully at the end of your dissertation, um, you know, is yes. reading the archive. It's reading documentary evidence, uh, often in difficult scripts, difficult, um, you know, historically specific language. Um, more and more, we've learned to supplement documentary evidence with visual culture, with paintings, with 
um, a range of, of images, but also with material culture, with objects. And in this project, uh, I really wanted to grapple with the rich uh, source base of what's called historic archaeology. So archaeology is very popular in Japan. Uh, you will regularly see articles on the front page of newspapers about archaeology, which is, yeah. I just think is remarkable. Um, but usually that is um, prehistoric archaeology, archaeology about the periods in Japanese prehistory before there was a written record, the Jomon, Yayoi, and Kofun periods. Um, but historic archaeology is when archaeologists excavate sites that are also well-documented in uh, the, the written primary sources. Mm -hmm. And so you can engage in this comparison. You can um, check what's written in the documentary record against what you find in archaeological excavations. And it allows for a much more thorough understanding of the diversity of a particular place or of a particular um, population than is possible with just one or the other kind of evidence. And so uh, I, I wanted to do that for Ichi Jodani. It would allow more of a social history, a kind of bottom-up approach. Uh, in the past, I've really relied mm -hmm. on elite evidence in my research. And I ended up writing these histories of, of you know, of, of the wealthy, which was never really my intention. <laughs> and through the archaeological evidence at Ichi Jodani, we can get it daily life for a diverse uh, population of, of urban residents. Um, but, you know, the other reason to pay attention to archaeological evidence is that I think it allows us to try to think seriously and critically about the embodied experience of people who lived in the past, not just the discursive representational record, which often is aspirational, which can be manipulative or, or even deceptive, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and also which is often locked into literary tropes that uh, are, are um, you know, possible to make sense of uh, from the point of view of the historian, but also can be sort of distracting. When you're dealing with excavated materials from an archaeological site, you can, you can get closer to the bodies of the people who lived in that place and the way they moved through the world. Um, we often as historians, I think, talk about subjectivity, right? The kind of the way historical actors imagine themselves and their place in the world. Looking at archaeological evidence allows us to also take seriously ontology or the sensory embodied experience of being alive in the past. And I, mm -hmm. to me, that's literally the most exciting thing I can possibly imagine <laughs> is if we can just come a step closer to know what it might have felt like to wake up in the morning in Ichi Jodani in 1570 and go to work, you know, and think about how did you dress? What did you eat? Where did you go? What bridges did you walk over? What alleys did you avoid? All of that um, I, I really value. And I think it, it, it's, it's legible. It is readable to use the, you know, the mm -hmm. phrase from the title in archeological materials in a way that it really isn't um, in the documentary record. Yeah, and it was exciting for me as well as somebody, as you know, who looks at sort of political history and is mostly in the discursive. Everything is about, you know, these elite figures who are writing these articles or journals or diaries yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So this was it, was, it was completely opposite to what I'm working with, but fascinating for that very reason, I think. Um, now, I was wondering if you could read a short excerpt from the introduction uh, and expand on it. Um, 
I was also hoping you could tell us what looking at provincial communities like Ichijodani offers for our understanding of this period. Sure. Thank you. All right. Uh, and I quote, I have argued elsewhere that the three heroes historiography is overly teleological, too focused on the actions of a few individuals and insufficiently attentive to the role of early modern hagiography and historical reinvention in producing the history of the age of unification in a dramatic and highly mythologized fashion. Um, so what I mean by this is that the late 16th century, the period when Ichijo Odani was destroyed, uh, which mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail later, mm-hmm. um, but basically when, for all intents and purposes, it, it was erased, uh, that age is usually dealt with by historians in a way that is always looking towards the future, always looking at what comes next in anticipation of the unification of Japan uh, and the establishment of the Tokugawa Shogunate in 1603. You know, the the distinctive things that happened in the Tokugawa period, um, the relative isolation, the urbanization, the uh, development of strong um, quote-unquote national culture, all of which positions Japan to become modern in the distinctive way that it does, right? So there's this sense... I think, of really ignoring whole swaths of late medieval history because historians are drawn like a moth to the flame by the actions of these heroic unifiers, these warlords who who quelled the civil war and put Japan on the path to modernization. This is very clear in the English mm-hmm. language historiography. I mean, you have early historians of Japan writing in English um, who just say these were the great men who made Japan modern, you know, this kind of, like that's what they care about. That's all they care about. And as a result, by far the overwhelming majority of the population of Japan in this age is completely ignored, if not erased. Um, on the topic of provincial communities, um, Ichijodani, which is now a completely, you know, rural, hard to reach site, not mm-hmm. in an important place, um, was once a thriving capital city in a province that had its own distinctive story, its own distinctive identity. And that was true for much of Japanese history. People were not unified under a monolithic notion of national identity. They didn't, they hadn't undergone the the socialization and and one might even say brainwashing of the emperor system mm-hmm. and the experience of World War II and then the desperate post-war attempts to create something new out of the ashes. Um, in pre-modern Japanese provincial communities, you had local identities that were informed by the landscape, the environment, the mm-hmm. seasonal change, the, you know, the um the particular distinctive political history of that place. And not everything is about Kyoto. Not everything is about the capital city where the emperor lives. I love yeah. Kyoto. I'm a, I'm like a huge Kyoto booster. But <laughs> if we only ever look at the capital city, if we only ever look at Kyoto in the pre-modern era, Edo in the early modern era, and Tokyo in the modern period, we're really missing the majority of Japanese history. So this was a very small, humble attempt to kind of try to draw our attention back to the to the provincial story. Yeah, thank you. And then later on, we'll get to the destruction uh, at, at the end uh, of the conversation as well and get to hear what happened to actual residents. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I'm also curious if you could briefly touch on the significance of Japanese language scholarship um, by the likes of Amino Yoshihiko and Ishii Susumu uh, for your work as well as your title, I believe. Yeah. Right? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, so I am completely, you know, reliant on the incredible research of scholars in Japan. Um, I mean, I certainly have looked at objects and documentary evidence in distinctive ways. And I offer my own, I think, unique arguments to the conversation. But the excavation of Ichijodani has been going on since the 1960s, and it is still ongoing. Uh, and um, there are many archaeologists who have worked in Ichijodani and then told the story of Ichijodani to other archaeologists and historians all across Japan, to the point where it's a name everyone would know. I mean, it is mm -hmm. it is a well-known story in, in modern Japan. And then you have, in particular, historians who are interested in complicating the nationalistic narrative of the Japanese past, like Amino and like Ishii, uh, and who turned to regional sites or provincial sites like Ichijodani to emphasize the diversity of the Japanese archipelago. Um, so... Uh, these two scholars put together a number of really amazing um, collections of scholarship that were both scholarly inter interventions, but also helped to popularize the stories of these regional sites. So one series that I was really moved by uh, is called Yomigairu Chusei, or Restoring the Medieval, uh, which was built around archaeology and makes medieval Japan come alive without flattening it, without reducing it to people pretending they're in Kyoto, sort of. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, another series that they published was called Chusei no Fuke o Yomu, or Reading the Landscape of the Medieval. And I took that term reading from their title and used it in my own to honor the incredible scholarly work they and their colleagues have done. Um, to, to be honest, pushing back against the Nihonjindon style discourses about Japaneseness that became so powerful in the 1980s and beyond. Um, so that work um, was so uh, important and influential for me. And, and a lot of it hasn't really shaped the, the field of late medieval and early modern Japanese historical studies in English as much as um, you might think think it deserves. Uh, it really, there's a huge literature on um, the provinces, the diversity of Japanese regions in the late medieval period in particular that I, th I just think historians can and should draw on more extensively. So I actually have a, as you know, Sammy, I have a really long section on the historiography of medieval urbanism yeah. and provincial urbanism more than any of my editors liked. <laughs> I, just, I was super insistent. This story really matters. And this literature is there for us to learn from. So I really want to give it credit. Great. And I'm glad I asked that question in that case. Uh, Thank you. Um, before we dip into some of the chapters, we won't have time to go into every single one. Readers should read the yeah. book. They'll get a taste <laughs> for it here. Um, or listeners should read it. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about how the book is structured and uh, how the narrative unfolds for what to expect. And then we can dip into some of the chapters later. Sure. I mean, this this was actually for me the biggest challenge uh, in working on this book that I never really solved in a completely satisfying way um, because I didn't want to approach the history 
of Ichijo Dani just chronologically. Mm-hmm. Um, the the it is a good model for understanding the age of warring states or the Sengoku period, but it isn't necessarily so meaningful in the year by year timeline of events. Um, and instead, I really wanted to foreground uh, the themes. So the, the themes of the book, are, of course, are, first of all, cities, you know, urban history of the medieval period. And so I open with a chapter about um, the, the Ichijodani as a city, why I think we should call it a city and not a town, mm-hmm. um, how, you know, its layout, its roads, its, its um, structure, how it's constituted. Um, and then I wanted to delve deep into the archaeological evidence and the material culture. Uh, so we'll talk a little bit about that chapter. But I'll say that when I shared the manuscript with archaeologists, they all said that second chapter is great because it shows how archaeology is done. You should put that first. Oh, really? Okay. And I, it was really hard to resist those, you know, very informed suggestions. But I thought, you know, the thing here that I want to used to set the stage is urban life. So I'm going to put the chapter that focuses on urban life and the layout of the city first. Then I'll get into the material culture. And then, you know, I I try to have basically a chapter on the three main um, kind of content areas of the book. So uh, war and the way in which warlords held on to power. And there is some narrative history in that chapter. (laughs) And then religion and the the kind of remnants of faith that we see in the the archaeology of the city uh, and then culture and sociability you know those are topics i've talked about a lot in my previous work the 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 ways in which this city became a hub for all kinds of cultural activities and social rituals many you know people fleeing kyoto to come to ichijodani mm-hmm. um then I, I end with a chapter about the destruction of Ichijodani that really is the only fully narrative chapter in the book. Mm-hmm. And some readers, you know, complained, oh, this comes out of nowhere. There's not enough archaeology. Where's the stuff? But the problem is the story of the destruction of Ichijodani is fascinating. Yeah. And it could be a TV show, right? I mean, it's just dramatic as you like. Incredibly so dramatic, yeah. I had to give it its own chapter and tell it linger on it you know and sort of savor it even though it's very sad and tragic um and then i i i end all of my books every you know i mean i've only written three books but each of those books has an epilogue in which i look at how museums display whatever the topic is that i've addressed in the book and i i like that approach so i thought i'd do it again and the so the book ends with this examination of the kind of dilemma that it faces uh, museums when they try to deploy Ichijodani to mean something about the past, because it's hard to do so, I think, really effectively. No, that's great. And we'll definitely touch on the last two chapters for sure. Um, and so moving to chapter two, which you mentioned, um, which is the material culture of urban life, that's the title. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about what the rhythms of daily life were for the people uh, living in Ichijodani um, in the 60 or so years between 1510 and 1573 when uh, this destruction happens. Yeah, I, 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 I will say something I probably should have said earlier when we were talking about methodology, which is that using archaeological evidence is not easy. Um, and one of the reasons for that is that archaeologists are scientists and they are largely mm-hmm. writing for other scientists 
so the the archaeological um you know data is presented in this very standardized format called an excavation report which can be 50 to several hundred pages and is highly technical very hard to learn how to read and to interpret and you know they have been producing at least one if not multiple excavation reports every year for 60 years wow and these they're like primary source collections basically right i also have been to ichijodani to examine some objects in person to interview archaeologists and to see the sites of course and so how do you organize this stuff because there's massive quantities of it it's it's not necessarily thematized in the reports the reports are based on sites um and i i came up with the idea of um approaching it through the 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 structure of a day in the life of basically there are some wonderful books for um medieval europe that try to look at you know what the day uh, a day in the life of a peasant or a day in the life of a nobleman might be like and so i tried to take that basic structure and apply it to ichi jodani and that let me bring in you know data from these different reports and also there are sometimes exhibition catalogs and things that were really helpful mm-hmm. um and yeah, I just thought, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? How do you dress? Um, what are the different jobs like that people go to? And what are the forms of material culture that have been excavated that can help us to imagine what doing that labor would have felt like? Um, what do people eat? You know, and then where where do they go home at the end of the day? What do they do to amuse themselves? Um, where do they sleep? How do they sleep? Um, what, I mean, including what do the toilets look like and, you know, where are they yeah. located? All those kinds of details. Uh, it was so fun to explore. And, and for me, especially I'm a foodie. So writing about food, writing about tableware, lacquer, ceramics, you know, why are there so many porcelains from China and, and celadons from Korea and all of that, um, dense nerdy material culture detail was just so much fun to to mm-hmm. try to make sense of and to try to um uh articulate i hope in a meaningfully interesting way yeah and there's some great photos in there it just reminds me as well um thank which... you well, one thing i should note about that yeah. for me is that if you look at the ebook version the photos are actually in color um Ooh, unfortunately okay. in the hardback version which is the only version currently available i hope a paperback will come out next year um they're black and white so if you are, if you have access to a university library, you can see the the color photos. Oh, great! I think I saw them in the in a in a in a talk you gave, and I saw I saw them in color there. <laughs> nice. Okay, that's, that's good to know that you can get them in ebook form as well. Um, so in the next chapter, which is called "Late Medieval Warlords and the Agglomeration of Power," yeah. um, you look at the rise of the Asakura as a daimyo or warlord family in Echizen Province. You argue that, and I quote. Fortresses, residential palaces, and the towns and cities that grew up near them played many roles in the expanding administrations of warlords in 16th century Japan. The warlords, who in some cases had newly come to dominate their home region, such as Asakura, concentrated their resources, their activities, and their assets, financial, military, and human, in these urban centers. These distillations of the power of the Sengoku warlords represent the trend towards not unification, but rather regionalization, the creation of distinct political units at the provincial level, end quote. 
Now you go into a lot of depth, uh, you know, about the rise of Askar, which is really helpful actually, uh, and how they established their authority in uh, Echizen. Uh, but I was wondering if you could give, you know, a brief account of that for the listeners, just if, for those who don't know, huh. and what you describe as this regionalization of political authority in med- medieval Japan. Yeah. So this is part of um, my attempt to try to tell the story of um, the Sengoku period, which is a national story. At the same time as I'm telling this regional story about the Asakura family. Um, and fortunately, the Asakura are a really excellent example through which to, to get at a whole bunch of different issues. Mm-hmm. So they started out their career not as the rulers of the province, but as vassals or retainers to the rulers of the province. So the family that ruled Echizen was called the Shiba. And the Shiba were very influential in Kyoto. Um, Echizen is, of course, located not too far from the capital. So it was close enough to allow a lot of travel to Kyoto and a lot of exchange with the nobility and the shogunate there, but far enough away that it was more than just a suburb. And so the Asakura, when the Onin War broke out in 1467, this is the war that started the whole Sengoku period, destabilization and decentralization. They did what many vassals you know, warrior vassals did in this age of civil war, they overthrew their betters. This is uh, often described using a phrase called gekokujo or the low overthrow of the high that I talk about in the book and that others have written about. And they succeeded. They managed to betray their masters in a way that was beneficial to certain powers in Kyoto. So their new status as the, the rulers of Echizen was authorized from the fragments of central authority that still existed. And they then built up their power base and secured their borders. Um, And what I really wanted to emphasize now shifting to the regional story is that not every warlord in the Sengoku period was a nightmarish, you know, expansionist monster who just wanted to conquer the whole country and make their name great. Um, That, that type existed. I mean, Oda Nobunaga was one of those (laughs) characters and there were many others Um, The Asakura instead seemed, and I don't want to romanticize them in any way, they were just as capable of bloody violence as any other, you Mm -hmm. know, ruling samurai family, but they were content to rule the province well and effectively and efficiently. And they maintained peaceful relationships with many of their neighbors. They engaged in diplomacy with other uh, warlords of this era. And I think that one of the things that the whole age of unification narrative really gets wrong is that it assumes unification or reunification, we should probably say, is good for everyone, right? It kind of, it presupposes the the reunification of the nation state as a positive, which is kind of remarkable if you think about where that goes in Japan, but it clearly wasn't. Here, here is a, is a, is a, province with this capital, this thriving capital city at its center, that is in effect going about its own business until Nobunaga comes along and says, join me or die. Uh, And so there is a, there is a, again, regional diversity that matters. And there are these lived experiences that are not the same as the experiences of people in Kyoto that we ignore and we lose track of by erasing the distinctive histories of these regional provincial communities. Yeah, that actually reminds me, one of the things I really enjoyed by, about the, the book was where you have times where 
if you look at it from the center, what seems like disorder and chaos or even violence or whatever from a regional, a particular regional center might be the complete opposite, where the idea of this narrative, if you just take a very centralized narrative, you actually forget that for a lot of people, very different sort of things are happening. And Ichijodani versus Kyoto is a really great example. I think that that, sorry, can I just say that reversal that you just talked about is something that we've paid a lot of attention to in the context of imperialism and colonialism, right? The fact That's that, right, yeah. that the experience of being occupied, of course, is described and you know, understood very differently for the different populations involved. But in Japanese history, this, those kinds of stories are minimized because of this mm. narrative of the monolithic experience of Japanese-ness. And we really have to push back against that, I think. Yeah, and your book does that. You know, I think that comes through very clearly. Um, awesome. So in chapter four, entitled mm. The Material Foundations of Faith, uh, which you talked about earlier, explores the religious life of Ichijodani residents in medieval Japan. You write that, and I quote, the excavated evidence from Ichijodani and other provincial urban centers also allows us to consider religious life without focusing on the ideological appropriation of religious language by political figures such as the unifiers, end quote. Um, I was wondering if you could explain what you meant by those words, um, as well as give us an account of what you learned about the religious lives of Ichijodani residents. Sure. Well, in I mean, there's a the field of pre-modern Japanese religious studies is incredibly robust. It's a just an as you know, it's a it's there's so many great scholars working in Japanese and in English and other mm-hmm. languages, and um, new scholarship is coming out all the time. Um, but there there is, I think, overall a tendency to privilege doctrine and um, visual and material culture associated with elites or what we could think of as heirloom culture, right? So beautiful things from temples and from religious practitioners in the past that have survived to the present. Very good reasons for doing that. Mm -hmm. This is often about the canon of Japanese art history, the heritage of the nation, Um, you know, and, and even in cases where the original structures are no longer extant, trying to piece together what an amazing temple looked like in the past or um you know what 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 was the decoration of of buddhist paintings like in this particular room those projects are wonderful mm-hmm. um but i also think they just tend to privilege a top down elite engagement with religion mm-hmm. and um a deployment of the sacred as a form of political ideology, right? So Mm -hmm. rulers like Nobunaga, Hideyoshi, Ieyasu um, may have been devout believers. I'm not not doubting that, but they also knew strategically from centuries of Japanese rulers before them that one of the most effective ways of advertising your your right to rule was in the religious or sacred realm. Mm what about regular people? You know, I mean, sure, they're the passive consumers of these messages, and they may admire the lacquer work on a temple that the Lord has sponsored or on a, um, on a shrine or statue commissioned by some powerful samurai. But what about their religious lives? What were their concerns? And I, I started, you know, as I was studying the excavated materials from Ichijodani to think that maybe the things that were left behind when the rest of the city was burnt to the ground could be an interesting um, sample of what the concerns of regular people were. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I do a survey of the entire city and what we know of the uh, religious institutions within it. 
But there are two types of objects that really jump out as being, I think, particularly significant as what I call the foundations of faith, sort of the things that you can't burn away. Yeah. So one is this category of earthenware ceramics that are handmade by very low status artisans and used in social and religious rituals. And these are actually the most commonly excavated kind of ceramic in Japan. They're found in archaeological sites all over Japan in massive quantities. They're never displayed and never talked about because they're lacking in decoration and lacking in artistry. They're like the equivalent of the plastic cups that people drink beer out of at parties. (laughs) Those are not going to end up in a museum, right? Because they're all the same. They're just junk. They're pooped out in a factory. So these kawarake earthenware ceramics are like the medieval version of that. Um, A warrior might eat a piece of um, food or a sweet off of one of these plates and then break it on the ground to make sure that the the piece is never used again mm-hmm. to maintain ritual purity. Or you might burn a candle on it, or you might even have a little sake out of it. But the point is, it's a one-time use ritual object, and their existence allows us to map where ritual activities occurred in the city and to think about how important exchanges of food and beverage were for all kinds of ritual activities, not just among elites, but also among urban commoners. And the other category of objects that survives in great numbers are these incredible stone Buddhas and stone stupas, which were commissioned as gravestones and which survived above ground. I mean, most of the archaeological evidence in Ichijoreng has to be excavated through the layers of earth. But these are so durable that even though they're made in, you know, 1530, 1540, 1550, they survive all the way up to the present on the edge of the valley, back tucked among the weeds at the edge of the forest. And they have names and dates and all kinds of prayers on them. And they're just a wonderful uh, reminder that for many residents of Ichijodani, fear of their own mortality and concern about the afterlife of their loved ones, you know, is is my dear departed grandfather um, on his way to be reborn in a better life or perhaps even in the pure land? I hope so. And this will help him on his way by adding merit to his case. Um, I just thought they were beautiful representations of, of some of the core concerns, um, ritual and the, the, uh, the cycle of samsara. Um, and, and, and I'm not a religious studies scholar, so... I'm sure I'm ignoring other ways of interpreting these objects, but <laughs> it was it was it was really exciting to delve into those materials. Great, and yeah, and again, there's photos of that there as well um, in the book. Um, so in chapter six, which is called "Urban Destruction in Late Medieval Japan," which should give away what we'll be talking about, um, you know, which is the final main chapter of the book, um, you describe in great detail the defeat of the Asakura by Nobunaga. And importantly, its impact on the residents of Ichijodani when the city was destroyed by his troops. Could you talk about what the sources tell us about the violence inflicted upon Ichijodani, which you try to emphasize, uh, which is, as you say, something that has been hidden by the narrative of unification? Sure. Um, I mean, I I think Nobunaga is is known and almost even celebrated for his violence. There's a funny way in which <laughs> the part of the heroic legends of the three unifiers is their willingness to engage in violence on a massive scale. But I think it, it always is narrated 
with the kind of you know victor's point of view um from the from the point of view of the winners because it's always about yes it was terrible that you know 500 people had to be beheaded after this castle was you know toppled but that was all so that nobunaga could continue to reunify japan and bring about an end to this terrible civil war so it's always we're going to stop violence by engaging in these inhumane uh, tyrannical acts of violence um and you know, one famous story from Nobunaga's career is when he burnt the temples on Mount Hiei to punish the monks for having sheltered actually the Asakura, the family um, and the Azai, the family that I'm talking about in this book. But the story of his destruction of Ichijodani is just, is barely even a footnote. And so I try to um, look at the course of events, the exact chronology that led up to the destruction of Ichijodani and to, and to emphasize that the Asakura struck struck back against Nobunaga in significant ways. Mm-hmm. They and their allies who were opposed to his attempts to unify Japan under his own name were close at certain moments to victory. You know, I mean, it was not preordained that Nobunaga mm-hmm. would be victorious. It was contingent and contested. And that when they did finally lose and lose very dramatically, they were pursued relentlessly and the city was destroyed essentially needlessly. There was no rhyme or reason to the, the, you know, burning of all the structures in Ichijodani and the killing of many residents, many, it seems fled to Fukui uh, Echizen, the, the nearby um, previous capital of the province. Um, but many were captured and tortured or killed. Um, I talk about how part of the story of, the the age of unification that is not emphasized enough is the very intentional use of sexual violence the trafficking in human bodies and the uh, exploitation of women um and i just think i really think that stuff should be front and center in our discussions of unification um because to to deny the 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 details is to just whitewash the whole story um, and to always valorize unification over every other movement and every other experience in Japanese history. Yeah. I mean, it, it, what you described in the direction, the, the teleology, as well as the, the violence that's hidden really comes through. You, you know, you talk about both those things or you complicate both those things. Um, so I was wondering if you could read the sentences that bring your book to a close from the epilogue, which I shall also read out the excavated nation on display and talk about what you were trying to say with those words. Sorry, this is a very long paragraph I gave you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Learning to respect what Jane Bennett calls the vital materialism of objects, such as those excavated in Ichijodani, as well as the environment that shaped the city and the ontology of the people who lost their lives there is part of the larger moral and of I think that's is part of a larger moral and philosophical step. We must overcome the hubris of the binaristic separation of animate and inanimate, culture from nature, and human from non-human, in order to confront the challenges of anthropocentric destruction. Otherwise, we run the risk of going the way of the Asakura, with Nobunaga's predatory violence replaced now by the insatiable consumptive needs of modern human societies. The interlinked urban spaces of 16th century Japan, each of them a small universe of material life, together form a medieval multiverse that has gone ignored for too long. So 
Thank you. That was very long. My apologies. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> that was beautifully written. I, uh, thank you. I, you know, I, I kind of am going out on a limb here, but I'm, I'm really moved by the specific stories that we can read from the various forms of evidence from the past. And I feel that honoring those stories and listening to them is a way to counter some of the most destructive forces of the world we live in today. Mm -hmm. um, and to understand that the destruction of Ichijodani, as I said a moment ago, was not foreordained, mm -hmm. but was contingent and could have been averted, helps me to make sense of the urgent necessity of making changes in my life and voting and trying to make the society better to the degree that I have any agency at all mm -hmm. to try to help avert or ameliorate the destructive processes that we see unfolding in the world around us today. Mm -hmm. I also think that what Jane Bennett is suggesting, and she's a political philosopher who's written a wonderful book about the study of things and material culture, mm -hmm. is that paying attention to the material world and to bodies and to landscapes and to the environment, listening to animals and studying trees and not abandoning humans, but looking for interrelationships as historians will make us better able to listen to the environment we live in today. Mm -hmm. And obviously part of the problem of our world is that we, for hundreds of years, haven't paid any attention to the environment <laughs> yeah. and haven't listened to the world around us. So it's it's a stretch maybe to say that studying the diversity of life in medieval Japan can help us to push back against, you know, the the terrible forces at work in the destruction of our world in the Anthropocene. But um, I believe it. And I, and I, I, you know, I'll, we'll talk about this later, but I'm turning more and more to environmental history in my work. Oh, fascinating. Without rejecting the study of material culture um, and trying to think more about how those things are really fundamentally related. Before I get to that question, I was wondering if I could just ask a quick follow-up. Um, you know, because you you've you went to, as you mentioned in the the earlier question, you you you've been there. You're seeing how uh, in Ichijodani, how um, uh, what it looks like now, the museums there, or how it's memorialized. Um, I think you talked about how um, a lot of the violence is not mentioned at all. So I was I'm wondering if you could just tell us what it's like now, or how it's remembered this history, or not remembered. Well, yeah, absolutely. The the I, I, I want to first offer a caveat, which is that my research was conducted between, uh, you know, basically over the last 20 years, okay, um, yeah. but especially the last decade. And things are evolving in Ichijodani. And I hope that the the ways in which the city and its wonderful archaeological evidence are displayed will change. But during the period of my research, mm -hmm. the tendency was to really strongly emphasize daily life and you know that kind of idea of that multiverse of that medieval multiverse that mm -hmm. phrase that i used in the last sentence um but not to emphasize diversity and difference but to emphasize togetherness it's basically framed as come see how medieval people lived in japan in the 16th century um you can see that more clearly in ichijodani than anywhere else right and what's net what's left out is the story of the destruction of the city and the and the the mm -hmm. Japanese on Japanese violence of that age of yeah. unification that seems problematic to me and i've I've asked archaeologists about it, and they say, well, we're trying to be kid friendly we're 
you know, we're trying to tell stories that are generative and building up rather than tearing down. And I understand those explanations, but mm -hmm. I also think when an entire community is destroyed in a day, we have to pay attention and we have to ask why. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, and thank you for giving me so much of your time, Dr. Patelka. Um, but before I let you leave, could you tell us what you're working on now? You've already mentioned uh, that it's going to be environmental history. Yeah. So I'm one of the things that I really became fascinated by in the course of working on this book and especially spending time in Ichijo Odani, which is a valley uh, today, a very rural valley, mm -hmm. was the the constraints that the natural environment placed on urban growth. So I have maps in the book that show how you have this core part of the city built around the Asakura Palace in the center of the valley, marked on the southern and northern ends by these castle gates, as they're called. They're really city gates. But then beyond that, you have these sprawling neighborhoods that are outside of immediate Asakura control that show the, the mercantile and commercial activities of all these different populations, including even what appears to be a, essentially a Chinatown. Okay. And... I I wished, as I was writing the book, that I had spent more time thinking about the environmental context for the city's growth and and for the lives of the people in the city. And so I actually at one point had a draft of a chapter about it, and I thought, I can't do this. This is going to take <laughs> me many years. I'm just going to stick to the main story I'm telling here. But I'm looking now to write an environmental history of Kyoto in the late 16th and 17th centuries, um, called the rebirth of Kyoto, which is really about how um, the reconstruction of that city after all of these civil wars invented the city that we now know, and that the environmental constraints on that rebirth produced cultural networks and pathways that also helped to make the city what it is today. So it's an attempt. A lot of environmental history today is um, focused on politics and the economy for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. I want to try to bring environmental history and cultural history together and understand the interrelationship between the cultural trends of this period and the environmental constraints. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Uh, look forward to reading that when it's out and, <laughs> and, and hopefully so interviewing good. you for that too. Thank you uh, so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Patelka.